The following podcast was recorded in 2021 and released on a separate platform. IC leadership, thought leadership, titles, current events, and technology may have changed and evolved since its original release. So I want you to think about the metaverse as a convergence of the physical and the digital, as a moment where the world, as we understand it, becomes machine readable. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart. I am your host, Jane Doe. On this episode, I got to chat with my co-host, Lieutenant Colonel Jake Soteriadis. Dr. Soteriadis is a member of the NIU's research faculty and the Director of Operations and Engagement for NIU's new collaboration center, IRIS Lab. Jake had the amazing opportunity to speak with the godmother of the metaverse, Kathy Hackle. Kathy is a leading tech futurist and globally recognized business leader specializing in augmented reality, virtual reality, and spatial computing. She is one of LinkedIn's top technology voices and a champion for diversity. Kathy has worked with some of the biggest names in tech, including Amazon Web Services, Magic Leap, and HTC Vive. She leads the Futures Intelligence Group, a futures research and consulting firm that works with clients in tech, fashion, media, government, and defense implementing innovation strategies, strategic foresight, emerging technologies. She's also a top Forbes contributor. Hi, Jake. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Good morning. Great to be here. So I have to tell you, your discussion with Kathy Hackle was really very fascinating. And after I finished listening to it, I did buy her book and I think I'm quickly becoming a fan. Did you know that she's referred to as the godmother of the metaverse? Yes, absolutely. That's quite a title, and I think it's quite an apt one for her. She's, uh, she's a pretty amazing individual. She seems that way. I mean, it's clear that she's so passionate and excited about what she does, which is very cool in and of itself. And she's so prolific. Every time I would log on these days, I see stuff from her, about her. Uh, she's all over the place. So... It has been a minute since you had your discussion with her. Um, I believe you spoke with her back in August of 2021. Given that technology is on such a accelerated path these days, and today is pretty much a different place <laughs> than, it, than August, you know, since then, Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook changed its name to Meta. What other changes have we seen since then? Well, absolutely. I think that's probably the biggest development in terms of catapulting the metaverse to something that I think for most people was very abstract uh, into something that is soon going to be quite palpable. And what's, I think, really important about this discussion that we had with Kathy is that she actually lays out for us, um, you know, what the metaverse is, what it isn't. Um, and I think that's the biggest question out there right now for most people is what is this thing and how are we going to use it? What are the opportunities and challenges that might come out of it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I did a quick Google search and <laughs> uh, do people know about the metaverse? And I feel like there is so much ambiguity that people do have the same questions. But it's, but it's, you know, all the things you spoke about 
with Kathy and they're there. I think I ended up spending several hours reading all the articles on the post. And I really wasn't aware how connected to us right now. For instance, last week I saw an article that was like, don't tell Zuckerberg, but the investors have already found the metaverse. And it's talking about the gaming platform called Roblox. And I believe you and Kathy joked about giving them all your money. So clearly the metaverse has economic implications for us. What other implications, what questions should we as the intelligence community be asking ourselves? What's really important in terms of the intelligence community and the defense establishment and the implications for national security, how do we take these technological developments? And frankly, this is, this is something even bigger than just the technology. This has societal implications for how human beings are going to interact with each other in the future. Uh, how do we glean insights from these developments and then translate them uh, into what we're going to do to make our national security and national intelligence strategies viable, uh, relevant, and frankly, um, on the cutting edge for the future? So I don't want to get ahead of your discussion with Kathy, but I'm really interested to hear your thoughts here. Do you have any insight as to how we will adapt, what changes, and what we should expect to see from the metaverse? Well, I think first of all, we need to we need to come to grips with what the metaverse is and what it isn't. Um, we need to find, and I think in our discussion with Kathy, we touched upon some of these points about how the intelligence community, how the defense establishment will use and exploit the metaverse and, and what that means in terms of this continuing digital transformation that collectively we are all undergoing at this point in time. And I think it really, it portends a huge paradigm shift for us uh, in terms of how we consume information how we how senior leaders will make decisions the kind of digital environment uh, that we're going to be living in uh, and even how we communicate ideas and concepts in the future all of that i think is going to be transformed significantly but the uh, the dilemma that i think we find ourselves in is that we're talking about concepts and technologies that uh, aren't sort of in the day-to-day -day, uh, realm yet and and as often happens government policy tends to lag behind technological developments. So we need to think carefully about how we're going to put policies in place uh, that would allow us to take advantage of these technologies and developments, while at the same time accounting for where we are today and then building aspirational futures for where we need to be. So Jake, if it were up to you, how would you define <laughs> or build our aspirational future? How, how would you like that to look for the intelligence community? Well, I think what that means for us is you know how we've already defined it in terms of our national security strategy uh, that the united states remains uh, the preeminent global power uh, that we remain militarily economically and frankly even in soft power um, the global leader uh, and maintaining and, and developing and enhancing uh, our global alliances uh, and frankly staying ahead of our peer competitors namely china uh, and russia and others in this emerging global competition that we find ourselves in right now uh, and using every tool and asset in, in our means to achieve that and to build that, to build that aspirational future. Really interesting. And it seems like quite the feat from where we are now. But Jake, thank you again so much for chatting with me today. This has been such a fun discussion. I'm really excited to see how the national security community adapts to the metaverse. Thanks, Jake. Thank you, Jane Doe. Kathy, it's so wonderful to host you on our podcast. Thank you for being here today. I'm really excited to be here. Well, let's dive right in. One of the things that I think is so interesting 
uh, about your career and all of the, the media engagement that you're doing is, is this idea of disruptive technology. And you've just got such a depth of knowledge and experience in industry and as a thought leader. Was there an aha moment for you that you see as sort of jumpstarting your interest in disruptive tech? Yeah, I definitely had that, that pivotal moment, let's say, where I, I recognized that I had seen something uh, or had at least understood that there was a, a really interesting future ahead of us related to emerging technology. So I'll, you know, I'll kind of be very brief, but um, back in 2004, when I was working in media, I, you know, I was working at CNN, and part of my role there was to look at all the raw footage that was coming in from the war in Iraq. So, you know, obviously the people that are listening to this, you know, can, can, you know, relate because they probably had to see horrible things. I had to kind of see them, you know, getting streamed live. But, you know, when you have that, when you have to see those sorts of things, you kind of have to, um, the only way you can describe it is you kind of turn your humanity switch off just a little bit, or you turn the dial a little bit just to, you know, to get, to get by and, and continue having a normal life. I always joked saying that I was like a Facebook moderator before there were Facebook moderators, <laughs> right? That sort of thing. But for me, so that kind of really, really kind of stayed with me for a long time, that kind of almost PTSD sort of thing, right? And it wasn't until about six years ago that I went to an event and I got invited to put on a VR headset. I was pretty skeptical at that time on VR. I was like, ah, I don't know about this. Uh, but I put the device on and I went into an experience called Confinement by The Guardian that puts you in a very small solitary confinement cell uh, where prisoners spend 90% of their time. And, you know, I I'm in there kind of in this solitary confinement cell within a couple of minutes. I felt claustrophobic. I, I took the device off and I said, this is the future. I don't know what the future of storytelling or the future of what it is, but I saw, I just saw the future and this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So, you know, I was coming in from working in media, working in, in live streaming when I got into tech. And then I said, I want to go into VR, AR, emerging technology. This is what I want to do. So very, very clear moment for me when I realized these technologies have immense power and I want to be part of the people that pioneer this new, you know, th this new place that we're heading. Well, that's an amazing story and, and you know, quite, quite a moment of realization there. And, you know, and I think you were actually just on 60 Minutes very recently talking about all of these technologies and something that is becoming known as the metaverse. We're hearing a lot about the metaverse. Actually, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg just announced that Facebook is probably going to be a metaverse-focused company. So we hear this term, but we don't really know what it is. Can you, as a tech futurist expert, can you tell us what, what, what the metaverse is and how you might define that? Yeah, and you know, I think Mark Zuckerberg speaking about it so publicly, and then Satya Nadella from Microsoft you know, in one of the earnings calls saying that one of the goals for Microsoft is the metaverse. Like that is a big, those are big statements that, you know, should resonate with people, with everyone in business and defense and education everywhere. So the metaverse, in all honesty, is still a bit of a hazy term. We're still trying to define it. Most people probably came across the term metaverse through science fiction, through, you know, Neil Stevenson wrote uh, Snow Crash. He coined the term metaverse. It was the first time it was used in most people, when they think metaverse, also might think Ready Player One by Ernie Klein or the movie by Steven Spielberg, which pretty much is a pretty dystopic view yeah. <laughs> of a future where the world is so horrible that we kind of spend time in a headset. So what I tell people is I want you to kind of not take those definitions. I, I reject those types of definitions of the metaverse, and I want you to think about the metaverse a little bit differently. So very simple for me to explain to folks is Web 1.0 connected information and you got the okay. internet. Web 2.0 connected people, and you got social media. 
Then Web 3.0, kind of where we're starting to head. So we're at the end of Web 2.0. We're starting to go into Web 3.0. So Web 3.0 connects people, places, and things. And sometimes these people, places, and things can be fully virtual or they can be in the in a physical world, but with a layer of augmentation. So I want you to think about the metaverse as a convergence of the physical and the digital as a moment where the world, as we understand it, becomes machine readable. Many people call it the future of the internet or the successor of the internet because we don't have the right words to describe it. But all of us that are working in this industry, we're starting to work on it, defining it, trying to understand what does it mean or the different nuances. So very important for people to understand, it's not just VR, it's not just gaming, it's not Ready Player One. It's a lot broader than that. And it's about this convergence of physical and digital, both in our physical world, which will have digital elements, and also you know, in, in virtual worlds where we will spend some time. That is fascinating. And so it, it really is something that's so broad and all-encompassing. Would you, would you maybe think about it as, as Web 3.0? Would that be a way to, to perhaps frame it? So intellectually, Web 3.0 and Metaverse are not necessarily the same thing. But it is easier for people to wrap their heads around Web 3.0 and try to understand the metaverse. The metaverse is a bigger construct. The metaverse is a system of systems. You know, it, it's a lot bigger and broader than that. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's still, like I said, a hazy term to define. A lot of us are working, you know, to create it. I do think, you know, I, I'm very adamant in saying that the definition should not be left to one person and the creation should not be left to one corporation. We, we don't, you know, once again, I always go back to Ready Player One. It's like, we don't want that. We don't want one corporation, you know, running everything in our lives. So, you know, so I think people need to have a broader understanding of the metaverse. And, and I do want to kind of preface this with saying that when people hear the term the metaverse, right, you have to kind of almost think about it this way. And at least this is how, how I think about it is, you know, how you might have the great tri-state area, right? It's multiple yeah. places in one place. So think about it almost like when you hear the term the metaverse, you have to think about the greater metaverse, right? And within that greater metaverse, you have meta metaverses or meta worlds of sorts, right? So when Roblox calls himself a metaverse, that's kind of what they're referring to. When um, Fortnite calls himself a metaverse, that's what they're referring to, right? So that's kind of really important to kind of understand because it's, there's a broader vision that is more encompassing, a bigger umbrella term. And then there's times where the word metaverse is used more you know, for a specific platform or something. So I do think that people need to kind of start to understand that when they hear the term being used by certain companies or, or things of that nature. No, that's, that's a very important distinction. And I think particularly now for our audience here in the defense and the intelligence space, not only is there still that uncertainty about what this metaverse is or perhaps what it should be, but, you know, there are some voices that even talk about um, now we're t we're, there are concepts out there talking about a military internet of things or a defense internet of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in your opinion, and following up on that definition, is there a need to perhaps, you know, be a, to, like a separate defense metaverse or an intelligence metaverse? Or if I understand it, the way you're describing, it seems like this might be more of an environment that the intelligence community needs to live in. Yeah, you're 100% right. Another way, so when I was at Magic Leap, uh, one of the North Stars in the company culture uh, was the concept of the, of the magic verse. That's what they call the metaverse. They call it the magic verse, a branded yeah. version, right? But when we explain it to, to folks in, you know, in defense or in, in enterprise, it's, it's basically understanding this is what's happening. So you've got layer zero, which is the physical world that we live in, right? It's finite, but you know, we're all living in this physical world. 
there's another layer, the layer, the first layer, let's call it that, uh, which has data, right? It's everything that our phones, our computers, our devices, everything that's going to, you know, our drones, everything, everything's putting out data, right? So there's this other layer that we as humans don't necessarily, don't necessarily see, but it's a layer of data, right? So it's kind of when those two layers converge and we as humans can actually see the data, we don't see it in ones and zeros, right? We'll see it in holograms or we see it in representations or whatever it is that, that that's going to show up in front of us, right? But it's kind of when those, when those two worlds converge, right? So that opens up a huge other world of possibilities. And within those two layers, there are, you know, eventually consider it, you know, the, the, the concept is that there are going to be multiple other layers. So there's going to be over those layers that are converging, you can pull data and you want to specifically access the historical layer, right? So you're able to kind of find out, oh, you know, what happened in this, you know, what happened in, in this part of town in X year, yeah. right? Or you're going to pull up information. There will be an information layer. There will be a security layer as well. So from, from the defense standpoint, there's a lot of implications there on the data that will be produced, who can see it, who can access it, who can hack it, right? So yeah, so it's, it's almost like, like everything that we're doing right now with our phones and our computers, you know, we live in these and there's hacks and there's a cyber war right. happening. Take that, but it's going to be all around us. So that has, I think, major and massive implications for the future of intelligence. Absolutely. It's just... It's so fascinating to discuss this because, you know, there are these, and as, as futurists, right, as we think about these things, we know that we're talking about entities and worlds that don't necessarily exist yet, but, but we're going to need to understand how to function in them and build skill sets uh, and train people uh, to be ready for that reality. You know, one of the things that, that we're seeing, particularly in the intelligence community and also in the defense sector, is that uh, many organizations are embracing increasingly more now virtual reality and augmented reality applications. And you know, you actually recently partnered with the U.S. Air Force uh, and built the first ever virtual reality futures report uh, in in a VR format. So, do you see this as the future of intelligence products moving forward? And you know, how do you think VR and AR can change the way our security leaders consume information? Yeah, you know, it was a great project to work on because it, it really kind of allowed us to take a report that normally would be in a, live in a PDF form, right? Or it might get, you know, the, the, the furthest it could go potentially would be like a video, right. like a, a 2D video, right? But if you take that report and you actually create these four potential futures that were presented in the, in the report and actually bring them in, into VR where you can actually experience them and see them. I think that that's where it's very powerful because we, you know, we as humans are very visual. It's going to be, I'm going to, as a human, I'm going to cognitively understand it differently. If I read it, I'm going to understand it. But if I experience it, it's, it's different. So I think it has a lot of implications in being able to put people in these situations and in these futures to kind of better understand like, wow, that, you know, that fourth future or whatever, one of the potential futures was really not the future I want to see. So what can I start doing now so that we don't get to that future? Right? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we always talk about the preferred future. In that case, it's like right. the least preferred. <laughs> so how, what can we do now so that we don't get to that horrible potential future? Or, or, you know, you step into the preferred future and it's like, oh, this is actually really awesome. What types of systems or processes or things can we set up now so we actually get to something like that. So I think there's a lot of power for, you know, for decision making, for policy design related to using these technologies to kind of show people and put people in these experiences. Another example is if it, there's something that's very abstract, 
right? Or, or kind of difficult yes. to comprehend or et cetera. Being able to translate that into a VR experience that you can put the headset on and, and understand that in a, in a much broader and better way, I think is powerful as well for, you know, for intelligence decision makers. I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. In the next episode, you'll hear from Tom Shanker from the George Washington University on the media and national security. There's a long history, of course, of media coverage of what we would call national security across the world, or maybe putting another way in the past, work of war correspondence. And the quite graphic reporting on the Crimean War by English journalist William Howard Russell of the Times of London is worth spending some time looking at today, as are the sketches of the same war by Scottish artist William Simpson, to include one of the famed Charge of the Light Brigade, completed about a year after the event and sometime after Tennyson's famous poem of the same name. During the U.S. Civil War, reporters converged from all over the world and the United States to cover the fighting. One report has always stood out to me, is a single paragraph by a Wisconsin State Journal on the Combahee raid that freed more than 700 enslaved people from plantations during that war along the Combahee River. It mentions a Black woman who led the raid and identifies her only as Moses. Of course, we understand Moses to have been Harriet Tubman. Historians don't actually know a lot of the detail about Harriet Tubman's Civil War exploits, but thanks to a contemporaneous report by this Midwestern journal, we have a sense of at least one of her specific actions. To learn more about Tubman's Civil War service, I recommend the Tubman Command, Professor Elizabeth Cobb's speculative, albeit fictionalized, account from 2019 of Tubman's role in the Cumbahee Raid. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu. I mean, you're really taking, right, you're taking a product that's a one-dimensional product, which is really what the IC and what the defense establishment is doing today, right? Everything we're doing is so you're giving people documents to read. But now you're actually creating a three or a four-dimensional product. And as you say, you're, I think you're, you're bringing in, you're tapping into some elements of psychology, right, to, and decision science to understand, you know, how consuming information that way might actually give a different outcome or maybe make a decision maker think differently about a, a particular situation. And that's, that's really, really fascinating. Let's talk about, go ahead. Yeah, no. I think, yeah. And I, I just want to add, Jake, I think it makes us think deeper about some of the issues rather than just gloss over them in a giant document. I think that that for me is the biggest, the biggest, you know, feedback that I get is, wow, I never thought about that or I see it differently now. Yeah. Right. Oh, and, and that's so important to get that different perspective. I'm really excited, if you can't tell, to talk about your book. Your, your, if it's a phenomenal <laughs> book, uh, and for those of us uh, here and uh, those of us listening, uh, I really would love, I would highly recommend to our audience to go out and get The Augmented Workforce, which is Kathy's amazing book. And it talks about uh, artificial intelligence, 5G, AR and VR, which we've just discussed. But she does a wonderful job of really weaving their impact together on the workforce and, and the corporate environment of tomorrow. So really just, there's probably not a more important book uh, that we all need to read right now. 
So Kathy, can you tell us, you know, what, what led you to write it? And can you give us some key takeaways? Yeah, it, it, I have to say it's been very well received. Um, we're very excited about, you know, the recognition the book is getting. It became an Amazon bestseller pretty quickly. And, you know, in, 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 Categories like strategic management and critical, and um, was it machine learning? No, machine, human computer interaction. So, yeah, it's been really exciting. So, it's interesting because I co authored it with, um, with my co author, mm-hmm. John Bazell. And when I asked John to write this with me, I actually did it really funny at a, a pizza place in Atlanta where you get served pizza by robots. Cool. <laughs> so, we always say that the book started with robot <laughs> pizza. Because <laughs> that's where I was like, hey, I think we should write a book together. And I think it should be called The Augmented Workforce, you know, as our robot server, uh, you know, comes towards us with our pizza slices. <laughs> so I thought it was quite funny, but it was really an analysis and, and a counter, you know, for, for us, it was, it was taking the narrative that we keep seeing everywhere, right? the dystopic narrative of, you know, AI is going to take all the jobs or robots are going to take over, you know, Skynet yeah. kind of, a kind of narrative, very dystopic sci fi once again. And we're like, yes, we're not naive. We understand that automation will replace workers. But on the other side, it also is going to you know, augment the workforce and it's going to change work. It's going to change how we work. It's going to change how we train. It's going to change you know, many different elements. It's going to change the worker. So we wanted to kind of counteract that type of narrative that seems so like one-sided and dystopic to saying, no, let's t- talk about the broader picture. Yes, there will be replacement, but... Let's look at how these other technologies all intertwine together and how does that impact the workforce? How does that change? Right. So that was kind of like the main idea and the, the main narrative that we wanted to pursue. And, and we're not being, you know, we're not being utopic um, about it. We're being more protopian, I would say. But yeah, we kind of wanted to kind of explore these technologies and, and make the, the biggest thing for me is we wanted the book to be useful, accessible and helpful. And I feel like we achieved all of those. Because the book is a good read for anyone at any level of expertise. And you can really, you know, there's something for everyone in it. You can walk away understanding more about the technologies, how they work, how they're intertwined, how do they converge. And then we have a lot of chapters with specific verticals. So, you know, you and I don't necessarily work in architecture and design, right? But there is a small chapter on architecture and design. And you might learn something, right, by reading it and how it's being used in that industry. And that might inspire you you know, to be like, maybe I should explore this use case in my industry. So yeah, it's been very well received. And yeah, I just, you know, just thrilled and honored with with the reception it's gotten. Congratulations. And it it, it really is a phenomenal book that, that tackles, frankly, some of the biggest issues and this tech and human convergence uh, that we've been talking about. So when we talk about, I mean, the title, The Augmented Workforce, you know, what do you think that that looks like? I don't know, we, it's hard to put a number or a percentage on, you know, human positions versus machine positions. Mm-hmm. But in, in your words, and, and from the book, you know, how, what do you think that that looks like over the next 10, 20 years? You know, that sort of variation between some of the, the, the human intensive jobs that we're doing today, moving into the future? Well, I think it's, it's, it's interesting, because while the book doesn't have the word metaverse in the title, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it is a bit of a metaverse primer, it's a bit of a, a metaverse related book. So, so I think about two things when I think 10 to 20 years, right? You know, you've got Gen Z coming into the workforce, um, you know, then by 10, 20, you know, you talk about Gen Alpha. So, you know, I kind of start to think about the, the, the workers of tomorrow and how they're different from the workers of today. And, 
you know, at least from the research I've done, what I know from, from Gen Z specifically is that they're, they're quite different. Uh, first of all, they are digital natives. Uh, some of them are crypto natives or will yep. be crypto natives, which, you know, is, is a big change. And also like they, they like gaming. They don't, they're not all necessarily gamers, but they like gaming. And they're going to expect the companies that, you know, that they go work for to be innovative in the way they recruit them, in the way they train them, and in the way they retain them. And I think that that is a monumental shift necessarily in how things were done before, right? It was interesting because I was at an event and someone said a phrase and said, uh, you know, it was for mm -hmm. brands, but they said, Gen Z doesn't want a brand to appease them. They want to go into business with that brand. And I said, yeah, I can wholeheartedly understand that. Because it's, you know, I think that they're a little bit tired of, you know, just giving up their data. Yeah. They kind of want to earn to play, right? I think that's a big term that you're starting to see pop up a lot more in gaming. You know, it feels like uh, this is, a, I'm going to borrow this phrase from my friend Tommaso. He, he said the other day to me, he said, you know, humans for the longest time have been, have been working really hard to, to make money, right? You work hard, right, to make money. But with this metaverse and this kind of unlocking of some of these technologies, uh, creativity is becoming easier and earning to play. The fact that I can make money while I play a video game, um, not not from YouTube fans. I'm talking about actually in right. currency, yeah. you know, making money when I'm playing because I'm getting a great score. I have some brand loyalty or whatever. You know, that that's changing. That is changing our concept and idea of work or hard work yeah. is evolving. So so I would say, yeah, there's there's a lot, a lot of changes coming. Gen Z is going to have a, a pretty big impact, I think, on the workforce. Companies are going to have to adapt. Uh, another thing I'll tell you that I think is really interesting, it's not in the book, but it's, it's a thesis that I hold near and dear to my heart, is that corporate America has absolutely no idea what to do with people that have personal brands, right? That have a strong following or strong thought leadership. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they have to have a million followers, but it's more about their, their leaders that are hurt, you know, that people listen to, right? And corporate America is eventually going to have to adapt because a lot of these kids a lot of these Gen Z kids come with built-in audiences, right? So they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do, right? They're going to eventually controlling the message is going to be a very, you know, a very, uh, it's going to morph. Let's say controlling the message is going to morph and they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do when a lot of these kids, you know, play video games and come in with built-in audiences. So this is, this is really, I think, an important point to underscore for our audience here. I mean, this is exactly critical issue that the intelligence community today is looking at where we have, uh, you know, from a from a demographic perspective, you know, there's there's a shift that, that needs to take place uh, in the intelligence community. We, we've got the same issues of attracting, attracting this new generation, uh, the tech natives, these, you know, some crypto natives, as you've talked about. And I think that that's, that's still something that has to be right sized, if you will. I mean, we even just think about things like working from home and telework and there's still a lot of people that are just so adamant about, well, we have to be back in the office full time going back to the way things were. But based on what you know, you've been telling us in your experience, especially in the tech sector, that model is quite antiquated. Would you agree? I agree. I mean, sometimes, yes, sometimes you will need to go to the office if a specific thing that needs to happen, right? So my husband works, for example, for DOD. So he has to go sometimes on the base. When there's something, you know, whatever, secret or top secret, I don't know what level, but <laughs> that's not my expertise. Um, but sometimes he has to go to do things there, right? And I, sure. I understand that. I understand that. But there's other things that he can just do from home. If it's a Zoom call about, you know, hours and management, he can do that here. 
So I think what you're starting to see with a lot of like Silicon Valley and the big signal that they're sending is they're delaying their back to back to work schedules. And then you have companies like, you know, like Facebook or, you know, or maybe LinkedIn, let's do LinkedIn Sure. said, you know what, if our employees want to work remotely forever, they can. It's their choice. Right. So I think it's going to be one of those things where it's going to be this kind of hybrid model where you might choose to work from home, but you might want to come into the office sometimes. Or, you know, or things like that. I've been working in that type of model for the last six years, <laughs> ever since I've been in AR and VR. Granted, I work in an industry that talks about the future of work, that talks about being able to put a VR device or, a, you know, our Magic Leap headset on and be able to work from home. And I've done plenty of that, you know, with me putting my device on and seeing holograms of my colleagues and having a sales meeting. So, <laughs> so I've been able to do that already. So I know it's, it's possible. Sometimes you will need that face-to-face. But I think that just thinking that because people are going to be in the office face to face, you know, we're going back to you know, going back to the old way. That's not necessarily realistic. And Gen Z, Gen Z is going to want to socialize, but they're not necessarily going to put up with all that. I think that they're going to change a little bit in how they, you know, <laughs> in, in how they approach work. Yeah, I mean, I think we have the unique, the unique situation, obviously, where classified work is needs to be done in classified facilities. So you know, you can't necessarily get away from that, but uh, I think we are seeing, you know, different types of developments, particularly technological developments that will increasingly allow people to perhaps do some classified work from home. And, you know, this is obviously falls more into the policy realm. But I think this is something that our senior leaders have to be very cognizant of, because as you say, in order to attract this new talent uh, that are going to get these kinds of, of things in the private sector, right, they're, they're going to have these baseline expectations. You know, we've got to, to find ways you know, to create an environment, I think that addresses those needs. You know, it just seems like it's 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 something unavoidable today. And I think a really important part as well is the the we're living very much in our in our in a digital world, right? So the concept and the idea of like you Google someone and you don't find anything about them because it was scrubbed or you know or they just don't have a social media presence. That in itself is weird now. Right. Like if I if I can't find you on social, like something's up, right? That's right. <laughs> exactly, right? So I think that that part of it is going to change as well because these younger kids, you know, they're on they're on platforms really early. They have they have you know all the digital crumbs they've left behind. They they start when they start a lot a lot younger. You know, your kids and my kids probably spend a lot of time on Roblox. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I feel like part of my for, part of my money goes there. <laughs> part of my <laughs> yeah. salary is going to Roblox uh, indirectly. So, so yeah, I think that you know those things are going to change. And I think the big thing for me when I think about intelligence and the metaverse and what 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 should people listening to this podcast start to think about is that there's going to be an interesting. I don't know what the right word would be, but there's going to be an interesting. I don't know if it's a battle or a war, but there's going to be some type of you know fight of sort to be able to own or to be able to 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 control what is within people's earshot and within people's eyesight yeah right because what could happen is you're going to go from the phones to wearables and it's going to be either you know some type of device in the ear or some type of wearable in the eyes glasses is kind of what a lot of us talk about and what we see in front of us and what we hear is going to be even more important than before because it's going to be digitally augmented, et cetera. And the consideration there is who can hack that or who can own that or who can control that is going to be incredibly powerful. There's a concept that, that many of us talk about and 
you know, in, in the in the AR VR industry and metaverse industry, which is called diminished reality. And I actually I brought this signal to Amy Webb, and she included it in her in her South by Southwest talk, which I was like, oh great, um, that's so exciting. But it's the idea and the concept when we think about augmented reality, we're always usually thinking about adding, like adding things, yeah, right. But what if it's the opposite? What if you're actually deleting things? What if there's a certain group of people you don't like and you just blot them out and you don't see them through your wearable? What does that do, right? How does that impact your relationship with the world and the people around you? So I think that there's lots of questions and a lot of considerations that the intelligence community needs to start to think through uh, when it comes to, you know, to, like I said, owning or controlling or thinking about what's within someone's earshot and someone's eyesight. Because that's really where, where the, I say this, like this is, that's where the cyber war of tomorrow is going to be fought. It's not going to be fought so much in the servers and, and send the hacks. It's going to be hacks in front of our eyes and it's going to be ha hacks in, front, in, in our ears. Gosh, this is, I mean, it's, it's scary on the one hand, but fascinating on the other because we're really talking about sort of rewiring the whole ontology of our world and, you know, how this all hangs together in this you know, what, what you subtract from reality, that diminished reality is a term I hadn't heard before. And I think that's, that's something we definitely need to, we need to unpack and, and think about the implications. You know, I think that carries us into an, an important topic, which is that it's this public private sector collaboration to really take the mission forward. That's going to be so critical. And, you know, your virtual reality project, Kathy, I mean, that's, I really think a classic example of, of what we need to do in the future. National Intelligence University is actually in the middle of creating a, a collaboration laboratory um, that's going to promote this kind of synergy in the future in public and private sector collaboration. So what do you think, from your perspective, you're an expert in doing this, you know, what makes effective public-private sector collaboration? Um, and from an industry perspective, uh, what do you see maybe as some of the major roadblocks to making this successful in the future? Yeah, I think, you know, making collaboration, I don't want to say easy because it's not about being easy, but accessible, uh, making collaboration accessible, you know, is going to be really important. Extra communication, um, I think that's going to be critical as well. And just, I guess, an openness from both sides on, on collaborating. You know, it, it's interesting because sometimes for the, for the, you know, for the, for the private companies, like they're profit driven, they're shareholder driven, right? So right. what's their advantage in partnering? you know, with, with defense to do something, but it's really about, you know, you know, we want to protect the country and we want to do something good and want to use our technologies for good and, and for helping kind of keep our country safe. So, so I think there has to be, you know, motivation from both sides, uh, open communication. Um, yeah, there are hurdles and there are things that need to be cleared, right? If you're using a special, like some type of equipment or something, you have to make sure it's the right equipment, all those sorts of things. But yeah, I think that there there needs to be, you know, kind of an alignment. Uh, I want to see definitely more of this type of collaboration. Uh, you know, I do have to say, you know, AFWorks, SpaceWorks, you know, NavalX, all these sorts of things that are kind of opening the door for some of that, I think are, are very powerful and, and very interesting in my point of view. Yeah, that's, um, I think we're, we're just scratching the surface of, mm -hmm. of where we need to be. And that's, it's, it's wonderful to hear that perspective. <laughs> Let's. Maybe talk a little bit, when we talk about the future, it's so easy, you, and you mentioned a little bit before that people just tend to focus on these dystopian futures and, uh, you know, all the things that could go wrong and right. And even when we think about the pandemic in this moment that we're living in, um, you know, it's, it's a challenging time. So from your perspective as a tech futurist, what's the most optimistic thing uh, that, that you think about 
do you have do you have a, a general sense of optimism concerning the future? I do. I, I am quite a bit of an optimist. And, you know, I think it might come with the fact that I have children <laughs> and I want a better world for them. <laughs> At least that's my goal. So I am pretty optimistic. I mean, I, I do feel like things have accelerated quite a bit. There are new opportunities being created. Uh, I think workers are looking to have more equity in, in, you know, in the market. I think, I think one big thing that you've seen is some of the companies truly understanding that being customer focused is important, but they have to focus on their employees as well, right? You have to be employee focused as well. You can't just be you know, customer focused and churning stuff out and yeah, service the customer, but isn't your employee your customer as well? So I think I love seeing that change you know, in certain, in certain companies that are starting to, you know, embrace more of that employee experience mentality. I think that's very powerful. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm quite optimistic about Gen Z and Gen Z's creativity and eagerness to solve problems and to collaborate, you know, from a, from a climate stand, you know, stance, I'm, I'm worried. I'm very worried about kind of the things that are coming, but I do, I do feel like Gen Z might be that generation that that has that knack for solving things, right? That is going to want to kind of really work on these things and and, and solve issues and 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 you know make the world a better place for Gen Alpha. So yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm quite you know I'm excited about as as scary as it sounds and as weird as it sounds that our kids have been kind of having to do virtual schooling and have had a lot of challenges. I am excited to see how that resilience that they've had to build up because of the situation, how that actually shows up in the future as well. I, that's, that definitely is a, it's a good news story to me. And, uh, and I'll just tell you what, Kathy, it's been so inspiring speaking with you today. We really appreciate your time coming on and speaking with us. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, I, obviously, we talked about the book. They can, they can find The Augmented Workforce on Amazon. Um, but where can they find out more about you, Kathy? Yeah, um, I would say definitely on LinkedIn. That's kind of where I share a lot of my thought leadership. They can find me on LinkedIn, Kathy Hackle. And also I write for Forbes. I'm going to be working on some work, uh, you know, media contributions. So you might see me uh, on the airwaves a little bit more often, which I'm really excited. So yeah, you know, LinkedIn is definitely the best place by far. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We've been talking with tech futurist, Kathy Hackle, the author of The Augmented Workforce. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.